Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show. Good to have you along on this Tuesday, November the 17th. As you know, uh, Chris Creston is always here with us. Uh, he, Chris and I are going to be joined by Dr. Furness in a matter of minutes. I want to ask him some questions. I also uh, want to pick his brain because apparently he had eyes on a new modeling tool that a company out of Markham spent three months developing that can track COVID-19, where we're going, um, how we should pivot in order to get the numbers down. And they've reached out to the feds. They've reached out to the province. Nothing. Crickets. No buyers. We'll be talking to that CEO later on in the show as well. And we'll also talk about online shopping and things to watch out for so you're protected when you make those purchases over the lead up to the Christmas holidays. But first, this is not good news at all. And I want to welcome onto the show uh, Dr. Colin Furness, who is an epidemiologist at the U of T, to discuss this. I was uh, listening to the news this morning, Dr. And Sandy Salerno was punctuating that Brampton's north uh, Brampton area north of uh, Queen Street East and east of Airport Road still it has ridiculously high COVID-19 uh, po- percent positivity rates. Data from the first week of November puts it at 19 percent. That is a rate double of the U.S. and leading all GTA hotspots. How worrying is this for you as an epidemiologist? It's really concerning. That is really high. Um, that is dangerously high. When that happens, hospitals nearby will fill up. Um, you'll have all kinds of avoidable mortality. This is, this is a real mess. And because it's localized, it suggests that there's an opportunity to draw um, you know, a circle around this in the map, get mobile testing out there, get um, temporary isolation centers set up in hotels. There's things we could do, I think, on a really urgent emergency basis, just like we did with long-term care homes in the spring, like really go door to door and try and protect the people who are there. How did this area slip through the cracks or can uh, COVID increase and accelerate um, at at such a fast rate that you wouldn't see it coming? Because this really wasn't on anybody's radar, this certain area of Brampton. I haven't heard about it until the information came out, the data, data came out yesterday. Well, Brampton itself has been quite a hot spot, and that never went away. It was, it's right. been around the highest in the country. And so, yeah, it's, it's a question of when you have a simmering fire and you dump a little bit of gasoline on, you can have a roaring blaze, and I think that's what's happened. Um, that's probably a few super spreader events, badly timed, um, within a neighborhood that's already quite vulnerable. So I don't know. I haven't seen the contact tracing data, but that would be my guess. And, and yet, it really can rise up that fast. Chris Creston, producer of the Kelly Kutcher show here. And I was wondering about those high numbers in Brampton and seeing numbers that high and increasing at the rate that they're increasing at. Should the schools be closed down, in your opinion? Well, I think you want to look really carefully at that, and I think what we would actually want to do is go in and do testing in the schools. That is, do sentinel mm-hmm. testing and see what's going on. Typically, we think schools are reflecting what's going on in the community, so we would expect to see a lot of COVID there. Um, but when you close schools, now you've got kids, instead of being all in one place wearing masks, you've got them all over the place. And, and that can actually right. cause more spread. So it's not clear that closing schools is a good idea, but you absolutely want to be doing testing there. And I would suggest in a neighborhood like that, why not test everybody? Why not test all kids? Um, we, we're getting to the point where we ought to be able to do that quickly and easily. I want to talk to you about uh, if, if modeling would have helped. And there's a CEO that we're going to have on a little bit later on in the show from 
Scarson, it's a company in Markham. They they dropped everything in uh, when the feds called out for any kind of help early on in the pandemic, and they put a third of their workforce on a COVID modeling software that more accurately um, predicted our COVID numbers where we are right now than the ones that the province is using. I understand you had a look at this uh, modeling and they can't get FaceTime with the feds or the province. If we had this modeling in play, could we have predicted what's going on in that area where we've got a situation in Brampton where they're at 19% uh, positivity rate? Possibly, yes. I mean, Scarson's got a very impressive product because anyone can use it. Uh, in other words, you, you, as a government, as a particular agency, as a public health unit, you could be looking at these models and forecasts every day and getting a sense of that. So that would be a very powerful tool. Now, that said, all models are wrong. Some models are useful. That's the, the mantra for, for modeling. Um, and and modeling is only as good as the data you can put into it. Ontario has been a real laggard in collecting the kinds of data that we actually need. We don't collect demographic data in many cases. We don't collect occupational data. There's all sorts of data we should and don't. Toronto and Peel are pretty good at doing that because they recognize the need to do that. But it's, it's spotty. It's spotty across the province. And I'm not surprised that the province doesn't, doesn't, isn't interested in this. They, they're not interested in data at all. They're not interested in collecting it, much less uh, making sense of it. And that's, that's part of the difficulty that Ontario is in right now. Yeah, but correct me if I'm wrong, we've been, experts have been saying, we've been hearing this since the start, that the the biggest tool we have beyond, you know, our prevention, staying away from other people, washing our hands and proper uh, COVID measures uh, where the individual is concerned, is testing and and um, contact tracing and modeling can help with both of those things. It's, in, it's kind of infuriating. I know that... Um, a Toronto infectious disease expert, Dr. Morris, gained some attention over the weekend. I believe he was on with the morning show yesterday after a social media post where he was um, asking the government to set a, a goal to achieve and maintain something called hashtag COVID zero. It's a strategy where um, they would be going for zero community transmission cases of COVID. And this could involve longer targeted lockdowns. Some experts say it's unrealistic for a country as large and diverse as Canada. Is COVID zero possible, in your opinion, without a vaccine? I don't actually think it is, um, I, mm. but that doesn't that doesn't mean it's not a useful construct. Um, the the problem is we don't have the kind of social engineering tools that you would need. We're literally not going to nail plywood boards over people's doors and do the kinds of things to absolutely make people stop. Um, and, and so I think because of that, because we there's there's just limits there's limits on how much we will be able to restrict people's freedom, even if we wanted to. You're not going to get to zero, but my, I would say you don't actually have to get to zero. COVID isn't nearly as contagious as we tend to think, we keep on creating the conditions whereby it can really thrive. And so we could interrupt that. We really could. And and so I don't think we need to get to zero. I think we need to get to fully interrupting the, the, the places in which COVID really likes to spread. Okay. So when you mention interrupting, because I think that's a good way to look at um, dealing with COVID. Is that what our chief medical officer of health, Dr. David Williams, was getting at when he said this yesterday? The challenges for all Ontarians as we uh, try to get these numbers down, as I talked about last week when I was with the Premier, that if we all do what we're supposed to do and do it well and do it consistently and keep at that, we can get these numbers down as we did before and bring them down to levels so you move from the red to the orange, the yellow, and, and I would like to think everybody would be in green, especially over the time of Christmas.
Do, well, what, is he talking but, about interruption and is it even possible or is he, you know, dreaming when he's dreaming of a green zone by Christmas? I think Dr. Williams understands his colors, but I'm not sure he has much of a grasp on what we need to do in order to fight COVID. The, the mantra, the right-wing mantra of personal responsibility, which is really what he's talking about, doesn't work. Not everyone has that kind of agency. Not everyone can work from home. Not everyone can physically distance themselves. If you live eight people in a one-bedroom apartment and one person gets COVID, your options are limited. So the whole idea of everyone do their part sounds good, and it will certainly it'll certainly appeal to to right-wing listeners but it doesn't actually match reality on the ground and and that that's a big problem is that he's not really been able to understand the concept the phenomenon of marginalized populations and greater risk that's at the core of public health and i got to tell you for just just i mean as bluntly as i can dr williams is a big part of the problem here okay if he can't understand what's going on with public health is, can the public possibly understand what's going on at the health table? Because there are calls for transparency when it comes to COVID. After Dr. Davila revealed yesterday that experts at the provincial health table, the ones that discuss what to do about COVID so that the government can make plans, have all signed a non-disclosure agreement. Basically, that means you put your name on this paper. You can't talk about anything that happens in this room with anyone. Do you think that this is, is, is going to be helpful that we get that information? Or would it be more confusing to Ontarians, especially when you're you know talking about the chief medical officer of health that seems slightly confused here? I think there needs to be an inquiry once this is all done. And I know that's not a helpful answer in the short run, but I find that I find that just beyond appalling. We, we can see really clearly that experts have not been involved in decision-making. They may, there may be tables. They may be talking. They may be providing recommendations. But the decision-making absolutely has no expertise represented in it. I, I, I'm absolutely certain of that. I became suspicious back in April. And <clears throat> now there's too, many, there's too many instances to ignore where the, the decision-making was so incompetent that it couldn't have possibly represented expertise. And obviously, if you're then going to put a veil of secrecy over it and say, well, we're not going to, we're defending our decisions and we're not going to let you see how they were made, the, the big problem, if I can put it in a nutshell, is the province is treating COVID like a political problem, not a public health mm. problem. And so the solutions are, minimized, are, are, are calculated in order to maximize votes and minimize disruption. So when we had long lineups for testing, we didn't increase testing capacity, but that would be a public health response. We eliminated testing. We, we scaled back testing. We said we don't need to test people, which is exactly wrong. The lineups disappeared. The political problem disappeared, but the public health problem got worse. And right. The optics seeing, are gone. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so we seem committed to uh, wallpapering rather than fixing. So the NDAs, the non-disclosure agreements, this is all about optics at the end of the day. Is that highly unusual? They, they, they would not um, allow doctors to discuss what's going on where, when it comes to public health outside those walls of those rooms. Well, I think it's unusual. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I hope it's unusual because I think it's so it's so egregious. But there are there are multiple narratives in Canada for how COVID's being managed. Uh, you know, the Atlantic provinces they're treating it like a public health problem. Quebec and Ontario are treating it like political problems. So is uh, uh, so is Alberta. BC is treating it like a public health problem. Between Manitoba and Saskatchewan, I'm not sure. I think they're, st they're still finding their feet because they're just really dealing with this for the first time in, in large qu quantities. So we have these different narratives. Is this a political problem or a public health problem? I think history will say that those who governments that looked at it as a public health problem will do better. Dr. Furness, I want to thank you for your time and your expertise. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. 
My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks. We're just a month and a bit away from Christmas. And you know that online shopping is going to be in full swing. If you haven't already started checking off your list, you might want to do that now. People have already started. And with the uncertainty of where we're going pandemic-wise with numbers, I think a lot of people are going to want to get their shopping done early. There's a story that I read about yesterday, um, and it's about online shopping. And uh, this one particular person that was shopping online for a drum kit that was coming from one province that he didn't live in to another province, and it was lost in shipping. And he now says, like, he's out the money if the company doesn't locate it. And basically, um, consumer law sides with shoppers, but experts saying say that taking advantage of those laws are harder than they should be. And that's because some companies, before they ship things, they write their own uh, policies and they're one-sided and intended to make customers feel like they have fewer rights than they do. They basically say that if your parcel's lost in in transit that's not on us that's on you the buyer which seems absolutely wrong in my opinion doug stevens joins us now he's the founder of retail profit doug how often is this going on where um you know businesses will try and shift responsibility to the buyer when a package gets lost in transit yeah great question kelly um you know, I think that part of what we're seeing here is that with the rise of COVID, we have a lot more retailers now who are dependent on selling online, you know, just to sort of fill the gap in sales that they might have had pre-pandemic. So you have a lot of retailers now that are engaging much, much more heavily in online sales than they probably ever have before. And in some cases, as you just pointed out, they don't even really have a policy around this yet. You know what I mean? They're, they're sort of engaging in it, but they haven't really built out fully-fledged policies. And as it applies to small merchants, in, in, in this case, I think the one that you're referring to is an in, in, independent merchant, mm-hmm. you know, they, they really uh, they don't have the kind of worry-free policy that you might find at, at a major national chain. So, it really is a case, I think, of caveat emptor here where, you know, as a buyer, before you make that purchase, I think it's worthwhile to maybe check in on that. You know, what is the policy around shipping, around losses? Do you insure the purchase for the full value prior to shipping? Uh, you know, all of those are really relevant questions. If you're not ordering from a major national chain where the policy is likely to be, more supportive of the uh, of the consumer. I understand that the rules generally uh, fall in favor of the consumer, but you might have to go to small claim small claims court to uh, rectify any any problems you have uh, between you and the seller. And who's going to do that? Exactly. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, who wants to, to you know, to try and litigate their <laughs> their purchase? Uh, it, you know, it's kind of crazy. And 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 that again, I think, is work that has to be done up front. Look, there are times where, given the nature of what you're ordering, and in, in the example you mentioned, it was a relatively unique uh, drum kit that this person was was ordering. Not something you're going to find, you know, certainly in a, you know, on a Best Buy store or something like that. So you do have to venture into the world of small niche retail sometimes, but before you make a purchase, especially one that's, you know, expensive, as, as was the case here, you do have to sort of protect yourself, especially when you're shipping and you're shipping across provincial boundaries. 
But it's not just about, you know, um, having to venture into small niche uh, stores to, to make your purchase. A lot of people want to do that because they want to help out the small businessmen and keep them afloat during this pandemic. I know a lot of people are, are going to buy independent this year for Christmas. Um, one thing that I do whenever I make an online purchase, it, it has to do with the, the ease of making the purchase, but I always use my credit card and I know that my bank, uh, is, my credit card institution, they're going to uh, protect me when it comes to a battle where, um, you know, maybe a delivery didn't show up. Can you speak to that? You're absolutely right. Yes. Depending on your credit card provider and the terms of your agreement, you may have that support where you can lodge a complaint with your credit card company. And until the situation is resolved and they will investigate it on your behalf, if they feel that there's, you know, merit on the surface of your complaint, they will investigate it, arbitrate it, and in in some cases, reverse the charge and, and give you your money back. So you're absolutely right. And again, that's, you know, this is one of the things you want to make sure of before you make a large purchase from a, call it a non-national retailer. And I agree with you. I think we we ought to be out there supporting as many small and local merchants as we possibly can. But, you know, we have to be prudent and protect ourselves as well. So either know that you have protection through some other means, be it your credit card provider or someone else, or do the due diligence and explore the policy of the merchant that you're dealing with and make sure that whatever that policy is, you're able to get it in writing. Doug, I know that you follow the the trends quite closely when it comes to retail. I It wouldn't take a genius to say that we are going to see a huge uptick in online sales like we never have this Christmas season. But um, do you figure that this is going to uh, be the end of, of bricks and mortar when it comes to Christmas shopping? Or wh- what do you think is going to happen in the future? I don't think that I don't think that we're going to see the end of brick and mortar uh, experiences. Uh, I certainly don't think that this is the end of brick and mortar or, you know, uh, physical retail um, but I do think that a few things are happening. First of all, first and foremost, yes, uh, consumers have become infinitely more comfortable and adapted to the whole idea of ordering things online through this uh, crisis. And most consumers report venturing outside of their normal behavior. So they're ordering things that they have never ordered before. They may be engaging in subscription programs and even things like entertainment. You know, we've seen Netflix subscriptions go through the roof through this crisis. So people are out there and they're trying new things. They're becoming adapted to these new behaviors. Having said that, we are still social creatures. We're physical creatures. And we love physical experiences at retail. But I think the nature of those experiences is going to change substantially. And I think we will venture out to the store more often for sort of a gallery experience, to understand what our options are, to try things, to experience new products or services. And then, you know, we, we may make that purchase later online in some cases, but we're going to start to see a blurring really between the physical and the digital worlds And it's a crisis like this that has really propelled us about five years further into that future. I was following a a friend's social media post the other day and and her, uh, they they have this 
company that is a design build company and they're getting ready to uh, supply Sherway Gardens with their drive-through Santa feature. We're going to see a lot more of that, aren't we, uh, through this pandemic where, you know, uh, malls are trying to do anything they can to uh, create an experience so that we still visit them. They certainly are. I was just speaking with a major Canadian mall developer a few days ago, and they were speaking to some of those efforts, you know, to give people a reason to come to the mall. But, you know, the irony in all of that, Kelly, frankly, is that it's not like the malls, you know, the malls around the country and frankly around North America have been doing so well leading up to COVID. You know, many of them were troubled, apart from maybe a handful of high-end luxury malls. A lot of the, the malls in the Canadian landscape were significantly troubled, having difficulty getting consumers to come out to the mall. A lot of the retailers weren't doing so great either. And so, uh, you know, a lot of the work that they're doing around thinking, you know, how can we get people to come for things that are non-retail related? Frankly, that's work that they should have been doing eight to 10 years ago, you know? Mm -hmm. So if there's a silver lining in in any of this uh, with COVID-19, perhaps it has instigated that kind of thinking, which could lead to better mall experiences in the aftermath. Well, Doug, I want to thank you for your time today. Uh, It's always a pleasure having you on the show. And if you were to give a word of warning, would it be get out there and do your shopping, your online shopping early? Because we're going to see uh, a lot of um, competition this year. I think we're going to see a tremendous amount of competition. And frankly, I think that uh, courier companies and the Canadian uh, Postal Service are going to have their work cut out for them. So, yeah, if you want something by the holidays, I say you uh, warm up your laptop right now. All right. Laptop is warmed up and ready to go. Thank you very much, Doug. I appreciate your time. Anytime, Kelly. Thanks. All right. Do you remember when the prime minister was doing his daily COVID updates last spring at the beginning of the pandemic when uh, he put the call out for industry to pivot to help fight COVID-19? Well, our next guest, he did his call, uh, decided to assign a third of his staff including a PhD who had previously experienced uh, in in modeling with a, another pandemic, the H1N1 swine flu of 2009, to come up with a better forecasting model for COVID-19. So they built this software, and they can now predict quite accurately how COVID-19 will spread in Canada. Can they get the government to answer their calls? Not really. Not the feds, not the province. The only government uh, is a municipality of York Region that's decided to answer the call um, that Paul put out. Paul Minchel is our guest. He's the CEO of Scarson. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. You guys are located in Markham, so really local here. Thank you very much for uh, having me on, Kelly. It's a pleasure. Well, I'm happy happy you decided to come on with us. Uh, this is an infuriating story because one of the things we know about COVID-19 is we have to test, we have to contact trace, and we have to forecast where things are going. If we don't forecast where things are going, we're just reacting to things that are happening, but happening in the past based on numbers uh, that are from the past. Because, you know, whenever you get the numbers uh, on a daily basis, they're numbers from a few weeks ago or whenever those tests occurred. So tell me about your modeling um, software and why it is so much better than the software we're, we're currently using. 
Um, yeah, I think one of the first things I would say is there may be kind of a, a misnomer out there that uh, somehow there's this coordinated forecasting effort across the country right now that's informing a lot of the decisions. And, and unfortunately, that's just not true. Um, it's really a patchwork of different models that have been developed and they don't really inform a lot of the decision making. So as you've appropriately said, when you look at the data today, it's generally telling you what happened a few weeks ago. Uh, we came at it completely differently um, back in, in March when we started. And we basically sat down for about three weeks and we said, if I was running a public health unit uh, and I was going to have to battle this pandemic for the next year, what, what information would I have to have in the model to do it? And I think that's what makes our approach so different. Um, we designed the entire system around that. So we're not necessarily always focused around, is this number accurate? Mm -hmm. But if I'm in Peel and I'm trying to figure out what to do and I want to say, well, what if I closed the schools early for Christmas? What if I changed the behavior um, in malls or whatever? You can actually go into our model and put that in and see how it would change the spread. And you can do that weeks ahead of it. So you can be very proactive. Um, is that helpful? Yeah. You, so you can hyper-target areas. You can get really uh, localized when it comes to decision-making via your software. Absolutely. Like when you see what, um, as an example, the province of Ontario reports every day, you know, under one o'clock, they're always talking about Ontario. Uh, we actually do it the opposite way. So we do all 34 health regions bottom up. So we know the explicit behavior that's going on in every one of those. Um, and as we look forward for the next month, we can tell you like Peel and Toronto are contributing two thirds of all of the cases mm -hmm. in the next month. So really the question is, what do you have to do to appropriately deal with them right away? And I think those are the kind of insights we have. And what I can tell you is it's not just how COVID spreading that's different. It's what makes up the regions that different. Right. So if you're in Niagara Falls, where you have a tourism industry or another area where you're heavy manufacturing, the things you do to succeed actually can be very different. And so, again, I, I hope that's insightful. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about your modeling program as well is just to give an example of how well it works. Your modeling program had predicted that we would be at about 1,500 cases by um, the middle of November, which is where we are. Um, the provinces, the one that the province is currently using that's uh, making decisions uh, with, it, it had us at 1,000, which shows that yours is more accurate than the province's. Yet, um, you haven't been able to have a meeting with the province. What's the holdup? Why are they kind of stalling and dragging their feet? If you can plug in so many different parameters and so many different scenarios into your modeling program. Um, I, you know, I think the first thing I would come back to is when you look at what Ontario just published on Friday, they have this one slide that says the principles for keeping Ontario safe and open. And they have four pillars. And one of the pillars reads, evidence informed, the best available knowledge. And what I would come back to is, you know, since, early, or since May, we've been telling them every single area we can talk to that we have a system running Ontario. Why don't you just take a look at it? And so why haven't they reached out? I really, for the life of me, can't answer that. So uh, it is it crickets then? No sense. You're not hearing anything. No, literally. I, I mean, wow. I sent, I sent, I've sent stuff to the premier, the Ministry of Health, 
Um, they actually have a proposal sitting on their desk somewhere um, from May 25th to essentially use this system for the province. And I can say with certainty that it provides capabilities that they just don't have today. I mean, you don't need to be a forecasting expert to watch what's gone on in the last few weeks to know they're not really using really evidence to make those. You don't, you don't roll out a policy on how you're going to do this color coding system and 10 days later change it radically. Um, that, that, under- that tells you... Sorry, anyways, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just want to ask you about the a little bit more about your software because I understand your software does something that other modeling softwares don't do. And I think we can learn a lot from what's going on in social media. People are very obvious uh, about their actions and interactions with what they post. You actually are even utilizing uh, location data released by Apple, Facebook, and Google as well, right? Absolutely. So, you know, I think one of the important things about our model is there's actually like an engine under the underneath it. It's not just put, producing a forecast. We actually go in and we measure how much are people moving in the community compared to what they did before the pandemic. How about the workplace and at home and at school? And that's what allows us to actually create that improved accuracy. And we absolutely, we load Facebook, Google, um, Apple data, along with case data from the province every day and they give us incredible insights. You would, you, you, I think you'd be incredibly surprised by how different people's behavior has been in the different health regions. Sometimes you think, you know, Peel, they're, they're in an incredibly challenging situation, yet they're not decreasing the amount they, you know, visit the community. So they're not really mm-hmm. responding to the situation. And we use that as an input to then project what we think Peel will look like in a while. And I know I'm kind of picking on Peel simply because they're in a well, very, very bad place. They're at 19% uh, positivity um, rating uh, when it comes to COVID-19 in one area of Brampton alone. And that is a scary number when you're talking about, uh, you know, a contagious uh, disease. Now, let me just ask you this, because I don't have a ton of time with you. You invested $1.6 million, Scarson, in this COVID-19 modeling software. Um, if the feds don't bite, if the province doesn't bite, could we lose it entirely, our opportunity to use this? Because I understand you're going to have to start shopping in the States. Um, yeah, well, we've already started that. I mean, you know, and to be frank, like we never did this as a, a money or revenue generating opportunity. We work with global 500 companies, so we would have been better off just to stay doing what we were doing, but we truly believed we can make a difference for Canada. And I've, to be honest, I've spent five months knocking on every door I can, um, probably for too long. So the answer is now, yes, we're turning internationally. Um, I'm very confident we're going to do well, but it's a big missed opportunity. Um, you know, yeah, we could have been uh, you're in Markham. You want to help out your own country and your own, you know, uh, neighbors. Yeah, well, and I, I think it's, you know, the last thing I would say is it's not like this is not political. This is a pandemic. My aunt who has Huntington's is in a long term care facility. She has COVID now. Um, mm. I had a kidney transplant. I have a second disorder. I don't go out of my house because I'm afraid I will die if I get this. So, you know, this is much bigger than the politicians and what's going on. And I still believe there's hope. Um, we've actually got a lot of interest now from experts in Canada based on uh, the last couple of weeks. So I think a lot of the experts have been saying the same things to the governments 
mm-hmm. but not necessarily having the numbers to back it up. And now they're coming to us and saying, well, this system could actually provide the numbers that we've been talking about. So I'm still very optimistic. Well, I hope that things will turn around for you guys. I hope finally, uh, with, you know, talking about it out on this show, uh, Colin Furness was singing your praises. He's an epidemiologist at U of T. He's had a look at your modeling software, thinks it's incredibly impressive and very could be very useful in the fight against COVID. Hopefully people hear us. I know that Doug Ford listens to the show, so hopefully he'll get on it and take a look on his desk. Paul, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, um, and thank you very much for shedding some light on your uh, modeling. And thank you for having me on the show. Well, thanks for tuning into the podcast. Always good to have you along. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And tune in if you can daily, 9 till noon, right here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.